Good day, everyone. I'm Dr. Tad Schnaufer here with the Global National Security Institute, here for another episode of our podcast, What's Really Happening. As always, our executive director of GNSI, General Frank McKenzie, uh, the former commander of U.S. Central Command, joins us to discuss and analyze pressing national security issues from his perspective after commanding at the highest levels of the U.S. military. No doubt, the main event on everyone's mind is the current Israeli-Hamas conflict, with news outlets reporting about regional instability and that possible three-front war for Israel, whether they're fighting in the south in Gaza, fighting in the north against Hezbollah, or fighting in the Golan Heights against uh, Iranian-backed rebel groups. But with all these different uh, coverage from the news outlets, turning it over to uh, General McKenzie, sir, what are the news outlets missing? What are they overlooking when they're covering uh, this conflict? Chad, I think what's really interesting is the fact that nobody else has actually entered the conflict. Mm-hmm. The fact that Lebanese Hezbollah and Iran have not chosen to throw their weight into this fight. That's very significant. And while there are rumblings up north and the rumblings mm-hmm. with Iran, the fact that they have not entered is actually a pretty big story. And I don't think it's getting the play that it probably deserves. Do you think in this case it's deterrence that's been able to keep them out of the conflict? I think it's a calculation of uh, strategic opportunity. Mm -hmm, They don't see the opportunity there. Lebanese Hezbollah in Lebanon is very much aware of what Israel could do to them if they chose to enter the fight. Iran is also aware of what Israel could do to them if they chose to enter the fight. But we should also remember, and and I believe this to be true, that neither Lebanese Hezbollah nor Iran knew about the attack. Mm -hmm. Now, clearly, and we need to be very clear on this, Iran Iran bears moral responsibility for what happened because they have supported Hamas, they have trained Hamas, they've given weapons to Hamas. So look, there's linkage there, powerful linkage, moral moral responsibility. But in terms of knowing exactly when the attack was going to come, I think one of the reasons that Hamas was able to be successful in this attack in achieving both tactical and and strategic surprise was because they ruthlessly compartmented Mm -hmm. who knew about the operation. And so I think Lebanese Hezbollah and Iran were not witting to when this attack uh, occurred. And there's a little bit of a coolness there. And I don't think we're looking at that perhaps as hard as we should. It's going to take continued attention to deterring them to to ensure they don't come into this fight. But the fact that they haven't come in to date, I think, is very significant. That's very interesting, because particularly when you're looking at why would Hamas conduct this attack, particularly without letting its other potential allies in the fight know. So what what do you think the interest was from them, from their side? Yeah, so I I think Hamas launched this attack. And, you know, there's some uh, recent uh, discussions by Mm -hmm. senior Hamas leaders that cite a couple of different reasons. One was they're very concerned about the growing rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia. This was an attempt to drive a wedge into that. Another one was this was an attempt to uh, sort of destabilize the situation to create a new negotiating environment. Now, I'm not sure that I believe that because what they hearken back to, of course, is the 1973 war. Mm -hmm. And in 1973, Anwar Sadat in Egypt attacked Israel, as did Syria. But let's set Syria aside for a moment. Let's talk about Egypt. They attacked Israel with the idea that he needed to have some form of military success against Israel, even if ultimately he was defeated in order to to reset the playing ground, the negotiating table, if you will so that he could uh, actually move to a peace treaty with with Israel. And what happened as a result of the 73 war was recognition between the two. Sadat goes to Jerusalem in in a remarkable episode in diplomatic history, and we get from it a peace treaty between those two nations that's really been sort of the bedrock of Middle East peace 
until now. So I think we're asking too much of Hamas <laughs> to believe they had that vision in mind. I don't think the, there's nobody in Hamas that's a strategic thinker like Anwar Sadat was. But they're beginning, they're talking a little bit about this. The truth of the matter is, Ted, I don't know that we'll ever fully understand why Hamas launched the attack right now. Probably several of these different reasons came together to, to prompt them to do it. Right. And what that's led to is obviously a large Israeli response. And currently the Gaza Strip's divided in half through uh, Israeli military operations with them occupying pretty much the north part of uh, the Gaza Strip and, and Gaza City, or work, at least working through that occupation. So what does that look like on the ground for the IDF now that they've had to you know, respond this attack and then waited a couple of weeks prepared and then how now have went in. Sure, Tad. So I, I think really Israel is pursuing sort of five objectives here mm-hmm. as they go into as they go into Gaza. The first objective is the most important objective, and that is to dismantle Hamas's ability to govern politically and to act militarily. And they're in the process of doing that. And I'll come back and talk about that in a little bit more detail as we go through the brief. But that's the number one thing. The number two priority, I believe, is to minimize uh, civilian casualties. And Israel is very attentive to the law of armed conflict. They understand it. They work very hard to minimize that. The fact of the matter is, though, because of the way Hamas has chosen to embed themselves into the civilian population, uh, putting headquarters in mosques and hospitals uh, in high-density population areas, it's going to be very hard for Israel to, to minimize civilian casualties as much as they would like. Nonetheless, that's a priority for them. The third priority for Israel is actually to minimize their own casualties, both IDF soldiers and uh, the Israeli civilian population. And they've actually begun to have good effect with the Iron Dome system. Right. We don't hear much now about <laughs> Hamas rockets striking Israel. Uh, the, the Iron Dome is up and operational, and I think they're having good success with it. Mm-hmm. I think the fourth, um, the, fo- the fourth thing that Israel uh, wants to do as they go in is they want to prevent an escalation of the conflict. And I think that's, that's very, very important to them uh, you know, as they do that. And, Tan, I think the fifth thing that Israel's got to think about is what's the end state? Right. What's uh, Gaza going to look like at the end? And here's where I have probably of everything that's going on, I think the most wrought and dangerous part of this whole equation. I know Israel's giving a, a great deal of thought, but but here's the thing. At the end, you have to have a political solution in place. You've got to determine who's going to govern there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do not believe that Israeli military government in Gaza is a good long-term solution. I'm not sure that Israel believes that either. They may have to do it for the short term. But you need to get to a place where uh, somebody else comes in and does that. I I think ideally the Palestinians. There are a lot of reasons that argue against that, and and I realize that. Uh, Recent history uh, and the history of Hamas and the Palestine Palestine Authority uh, is another key thing. So there are factors that will make that very hard to do. But you've got to have a vision for how it ends. Uh, And I, I know Israel's working to develop that right now. But they're going to need to further uh, elaborate on that because, frankly, international pressure is growing on Israel. You know, as as the Israeli attack continues, here's just a simple, ugly fact. The the Hamas attack on 7 October, every day that goes forward is a further day in the past. Hmm. And it tends to be forgotten more and more, whereas Israeli attacks continue every day and, in fact, Civilians are dying every day. Um, it's not Israeli intent to in, to occur those incur those casualties, and you're, largely they're caused because Hamas is in every way trying to use the human population of Gaza as a shield. But nonetheless, that gets coverage, and we see in the media uh, pressure is building on Israel. In this sense, I am not certain that time is on Israel's side as they continue this campaign. 
No, and that makes perfect sense as global opinion might turn against Israel over time. So if they're working on this tight um, time frame for the occupation and eventually to figure out what a post-conflict settlement looks like, you know, obviously Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, noted that, you know, he's calling for an indefinite period of time of occupation. And obviously no one will know how long it takes. But what does that mean for Israel? Are they going to try to, uh, how long is it going to take? So I don't think anybody knows. Right. I don't think Israel knows. I think Israel and the Israelis are very much aware that they don't want to be in there for the long term. So I I tend to listen to comments like that that are being made in the heat of battle. It's just Mm -hmm. that comments that are being made in the heat of battle. But even, but you need behind the scenes, you need to be thinking very coolly uh, and very strategically about the way forward here, because there is actually opportunity in this war. You do have, uh, despite all the bloodletting, despite all the vicious slaughter that occurred in Israel when Hamas attacked, if you're the, if you're the Israelis, you have an opportunity here to maybe reset reset the game a little bit if you can find a partner on the Arab side. Sure. And the difficulty has always been finding a, a partner, a competent partner on the Arab side, particularly in Gaza. It's not going to be Hamas. I think we all recognize that. That's not a that's not a tolerable outcome. But if not Hamas and if not an Israeli occupying force, then who is it going to be? And I would hope that at the diplomatic level, we're working feverishly behind the scenes to find uh, uh, entities that are going to be willing to come in and do that. Now, are there lessons learned that Israel can take from whether it's U.S. operations, but also their past history with the occupation of the Gaza Strip from, you know, from 1967 to 2005, when they unilaterally withdrew military forces from the area. Is there some lessons they could learn from that? Well, I think the, the lesson I would teach them from American experience is you need to know how you want it to end when you go in. Sure. And we've learned that the hard way sometimes ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, again, I go back to the fact if you're going to make decisions in, in matters like this, you need to make cold decisions, not hot-blooded decisions. Mm-hmm. And you need to have a view to how you want it to end. The view of how you want it to end will guide you when you begin. And that's very important to do that. The other thing would be, just from their own experience, 1967-2005 is you don't want to repeat that process. <laughs> right. You don't want a lengthy, a lengthy uh, um, occupation that ultimately leads to being forced to leave for either internal political reasons or just the friction of being in there. So I think you'd like to avoid that if you can. So going, walking down that path with your eyes open and aware of what's happened before, I think it, it, it can guide you. And I, I believe they're going to be open to this. And I think in the, in, as, as the days continue to unfold here and as their attack continues to gain, to gain force uh, in Gaza, they're going to become more attuned to what the end state needs to look like. Sure, and in looking at that end state, kind of coming back from the U.S.'s role in this in this conflict. So, what 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 role is U.S. forces playing, particularly the naval forces that moved to the Eastern Mediterranean, the, the naval forces in the Red Sea, as well as uh, the several attacks on U.S. bases in the region? What, what what role do they play in this conflict? So, I think the U.S. force flow into the region has largely been focused on deterring Iran from entering mm-hmm. the conflict, from deterring Lebanese Hezbollah from entering the conflict. We want to keep it localized. We do not want it to spread. Israel doesn't want or need our assistance fighting in Gaza, and I don't believe it would be U.S. national policy to commit forces to to assist them in that fight. They don't sure. need our help. But wh- but what we can do with the surf with the vessels that are in the Eastern Med is provide ballistic missile defense of, mm-hmm. of uh, Israel from Iran, should Iran choose to attack Israel, possibly from Lebanese Hezbollah as well. An aircraft carrier is going through the Strait of Horm, uh, Strait, Suez Canal, I'm sorry, going mm-hmm. through the Suez Canal. 
and will emerge into the Gulf of Oman. We'll see where Central Command chooses to place it. Mm-hmm. But the Iranians know very well, very much what it means when an aircraft carrier is sitting off their flank in the Gulf of Oman. There is clear and compelling historical evidence that the Iranians respond to, to deployment of forces into the region. Many crises in the in the Central Command region have been caused by the uh, rapid uh precipitous withdrawal of forces, which gave confidence and enthusiasm to the Iranians. Uh, Bringing forces back in tends to cool their ardor uh, for for misbehavior. Now, as we know, every day there are small attacks on American forces throughout the region. This reflects a central bifurcation in Iranian thinking, and let me take a moment to explain it. I think Iran pursues three diplomatic geopolitical goals in the region. The first is preservation of the regime. Mm-hmm. Preservation of the theocratic regime in Iran is their number one compelling overriding priority. The second priority, and two and three may go back and forth as two and three, right. uh, but we'll say two is the destruction of Israel, mm-hmm. and three is the ejection of the United States from the from the region. They have long believed that the Iranians have long believed they can eject us, make us leave the region by increasing our level of pain, particularly in mm-hmm. Iraq and Syria, by low-level attacks on U.S. forces. Now, I'm not certain, in fact, that is going to be an appropriate thing to do. Let me rephrase that. I'm actually not certain that that course of action will lead to us withdrawing. Right. But my opinion on it's not relevant. It's what the Iranians think, and I believe they do. So what we've done is we've begun to strike back a little bit. One would hope that we're signaling the Iranians that these attacks cannot continue, that if they do continue, eventually someone's going to die. And eventually we're going to be forced to respond at a much higher level. We would prefer to avoid that. I believe actually the Iranians would prefer to avoid that too, but they believe they can still achieve their goals by operating below a certain line, whatever that line is, where we won't respond. And perhaps by some of our deployments in the past and some of our of the, uh, the opportunities we've had to take action in the past to respond to them when we did not do it, they have drawn lessons about that. So now you have to unlearn those lessons, which is <laughs> right. always very difficult in a situation like this. Right, particularly when you're trying to send a constant signal. This is how we respond. This is the red line. We want to send very strong signals, very clear signals to Iran in this case. We have not always done that. When as we're looking at the the region as a whole and, and also this conflict, what are the U.S. national interests at stake here? So when when more policymakers are making decisions on when to send forces in or, or how much, what, what what interests are they looking at? Well, sure, I think we want to we want to preserve the global commons as a place where things can move. I think mm-hmm. that's very important. Right. Oil certainly moves on it. We don't get a lot of our oil from the Middle East, but most of the rest of the world does. So I think ensuring that that flow can continue is very important. I think protection of Israel is clearly a U.S. national priority, um, and I think generally peace and stability in the region to a degree that attacks can't be generated against the United States by ungoverned spaces from violent extremist organizations, things that tend to arise when you have state-on-state conflict. We would like to prevent those things from occurring. And and I would tell you, just as a matter of national policy, because it's often stated, we don't want Iran to possess a nuclear weapon. Right. Right. In general, while you were a commander of U.S. Central Command, Israel moved from the area of responsibility of European Command to U.S. Central Command. How has that influenced the U.S. approach to furthering those interests uh, during this conflict? Sure. I think the fact that Israel uh, coming into the Central Command region has been helpful in every way. Mm -hmm. First of all, it naturally aligns Israel and a combatant command that's focused against the greatest threat to Israel, which is Iran. We at Central Command viewed Iran as our principal uh, threat in the region, Mm -hmm. as does Israel. 
So now you've got a combatant command that's sort of aligned against against the same threat. Whereas European command, of course, has to deal with the Russians, and we see they're com- they're consumed by what's going on up in Ukraine right now. So it actually is a good fit. We had done many operational things with Israel down through the years, but now it's formalized. And really, in in, in a lot of ways, it is the operationalization of the Abraham Accords and the normalization of relations between various Arab states and Israel. And look, I don't want to uh, be too Pollyannish about this and put too bright a future on it right now, because a lot of those things are in a very bumpy patch because of what's going on uh, in Gaza. But all, all Arab states are still very concerned about Iran. And ultimately, they're, they realize that some form of a collective defense architecture, primarily ballistic missile, uh, anti-air, is one of the best things they can do to protect themselves against the threat, because that threat is not a ground maneuver threat from Iran. Mm-hmm. Proxies are a threat, to be certain. But the real threat is the ballistic missiles, the drones, and the unmanned aerial vehicles that Iran can now throw against its neighbors. And Israel coming into the AOR, AOR the Area of Responsibility for Central Command, markedly helped those efforts. I would hope they will continue. Again, I don't want to oversell where we are right now because I think everything is on a little bit of a pause because of the Gaza situation. But I am actually, I remain confident about the way ahead. And looking at that, and as we talk about the normalization of relations between Israel and its neighbors, this conflict obviously interrupted it with a number of, you know, uh, whatever Saudi Arabia declining to have high, high, high level diplomatic visits from the U.S. or whatever it may be. So how does that go forward? How does the U.S. US keep those relations alive uh, and pretty much wait out until the conflict can be resolved? I think, first of all, you keep the mill to mill, the military to military relationships mm-hmm. active right. below the political level. Those right. continue. Look, nations will sort out what's important for them, and you've got to give them room and time to do it. We need to be we need to be an honest broker here to the to the degree that we can. Sure. You know, we all we all want a solution in Gaza where people aren't dying. I don't think anybody anywhere uh, doesn't favor that kind of a solution. It's just how we get there that's a matter of debate going forward. And so, I think we have an, the United States has an opportunity uh, to continue to be uh, the indispensable partner to many nations in this region. I don't believe this conflict is going to change that. Again, because of the imminent threat of Iran, their stated objectives and their actual actions, all of those things speak for themselves. Right. And do you see any pathway to a regional conflict as of right now where Iran tries to, in a a sense, extend its influence? I think it's very possible. Uh, But again, as we started our discussion, Mm -hmm. what is a little surprising, maybe not surprising, but I think is very informative and instructive, is the fact they have chosen not to enter in its strength against Israel. Iran has maybe 150 missiles that can target Israel. They could have chosen to employ those. They did not. and that's significant. Nor did they try to push Lebanese Hezbollah into the fight. Although I would note that Lebanese Hezbollah will make its own decisions mm-hmm. about whether or not to enter the fight. Right. They won't enter the fight at the command of, of at the command of Iran. That that'll be an independent decision. While they're linked to Iran, funded by Iran, trained by Iran, equipped by Iran, nonetheless, the decision to enter the fight will be uniquely theirs. So. Where we sit now, we have Israeli forces in Gaza conducting their military operations. Again, these other nations and non-state actors kind of sitting in the sidelines seeing what's going to develop. What does the future of this conflict uh, hold for uh, the region and, and, and the globe generally? 
So I think Israel is going to continue their offensive. They're moving deliberately. They're trying to, as, as I noted, minimize their casualties, minimize civilian casualties, but at the same time dismantle the, the murderous structure of Hamas. And that 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 campaign is, is continuing. It will take time. Combat in a built-up area is the most difficult of all combat operations, particularly when you're trying to adhere as much as you can to the law of armed conflict. Uh, you're trying to minimize those casualties, even though they're inevitable. So it's going to take time to do this. And, you know, time in, in diplomatic terms uh, is probably going to increase pressure on Israel, uh, you know, to stop the attack. I think Israel's very determined to finish this because it is an existential moment for Israel. And, 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 and so they will continue the attack. Uh, it's, but again, it will take, it's going to take time to, to be completed. So what advice would you give world leaders as they try to navigate this situation, particularly from the U.S. perspective and, and uh, other allies? Well, I think the most important thing is to continue the actions that we're taking that are contributing to the deterrence of Iran, Lebanese Hezbollah. Look, the Houthis down in Yemen are in it, and, and they're going to continue to be in it. But it's relatively minor compared to what you get from Lebanese Hezbollah and from Iran. So you want to you want to keep the uh, conflict localized. You don't want it to spread. I think that's probably the overriding thing. Then, of course, we'd like for it to be over as soon as possible. Sure. But I do believe that we need to continue to be supportive of Israel and the objectives that Israel is pursuing in Gaza, because there's really no other alternative here. And as we look at global impacts of the conflict and, and continuing to support Israel, is that going to be more difficult as we have the continuing war in Ukraine, as this conflict continues to heat up and it looks like there's not a near-term solution? Is that going to be more difficult for the West? I think in the aggregate, this is one of the most dangerous times we've been in, uh, really, mm-hmm. since the end of the Second World War. Uh, the major conflict in, in Ukraine continues. Right. It's just as dangerous as it was <laughs> right. before this one started. Um, you know, we're, so we now have to balance that. We have to balance what's happening in the Middle East. We have to balance China's long-term aspirational goals in the, in the Western Pacific. But if you're going to be a global power, you have to think globally. We are not always good at that. We have an opportunity here to, to demonstrate that we can actually walk and chew gum at the same time. It's <laughs> right. not an easy thing, and I don't mean to be you know flip about it, but it's difficult to do. But we have the capability to do it. We've done it before. and uh, But now is a very testing time, I think, for U.S. national leadership. Well, and we'll, we'll continue to see how that test plays out over the next few weeks. Thank you, General, for your time. Thanks, Dad. And that wraps up another episode of the GNSI podcast, What's Really Happening with General Retired Frank McKenzie. We look forward to seeing you at other episodes.